real you, unadulterated. That's right. Unpasteurized. All right, I hear me. Non-homogenized. I hear you. I hear me too. All right. All right, Chris. Now, before you do your patented intro, yes, on one of the Facebook threads on the Facebook page for Full Cast and Crew, which yes. you can find by going to Facebook and just putting in the words Full Cast and Crew, if anyone wants to do Couldn't that. Couldn't be easier. I'm not saying they should. I'm just saying if they wanted to. I'm saying that they should. You There's may a have, lot of fun stuff that happens there. There is. You may have picked up a little moment where I said I was going to give you a series of apologies in our next recording. That's our, next hear, door, that's our next door neighbor. Do you think they, they hear us recording? They're trying oh, to drown us out deliberately? Oh, oh, I know they hear us. <laughs> have they complained? They have. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Which um, is what the irony is. I think you can hear you can hear that coming through the wall pretty probably recording on the podcast, right? Yeah. So four days a week, all day, that's what I yeah. listen to. <laughs> it doesn't bother me. I'm okay. Like we work in a production environment. There's gonna be noise from office to office, it's not a big deal. One day a week, we sit here for an hour, for an hour and hour, have hour a conversation. And, a yeah. and while we were doing that last week, they apparently came out and complained to one of our coworkers wow. that we were making too much noise. So, uh, and it wasn't even. <laughs> we how much about, noise can you make? We we're talking about a cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the first apology I want to offer you, Chris, I realized in listening to a couple of recent episodes, and you had done the intro for the episode that's posting today. And I realized that I'd given you some grief on the last couple of episodic introductions that you had done. But what I realized was I actually wasn't really listening. And that's why when I, when you would finish your thing, because I'm typically when you're reading that, I'm, I'm preparing the next portion of what we do. So I realized that in all the instances where I'm kind of like underwhelmed, I'm not actually underwhelmed. I'm actually wasn't really listening. So I would like to apologize for that. And those were all excellent, by the way. The introductions were all very good. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So I'm going to pay closer attention and thus be more, or I'll be less prepared as the podcast unfolds because I'll be actually paying attention to what you're saying. This, you actually- Just uh, in that one section. Well, just, trust me, I don't don't anticipate you listening- get carried away. (laughs) Anymore. (laughs) But it actually came up when I'm editing the uh, Into the Spider-Verse episode. Uh, I think you actually did say like, wait, I wasn't listening. <laughs> Can you read that intro again? Yeah, because I was listening to the one for this week's episode. Right. So that's my first apology in today's well, Apologizing to Chris episode. This is so great, but uh, apology accepted. Okay, let's let's go forward with your introduction. With the intro. Okay. I thought there was. I thought it was going to be a slew. I mean, no, that no, was no. One. It was they very may nice. be meted out as great. the podcast taping Fantastic. goes forth. Okay. Well, can't the, actually remember what the other ones were, so I'll have to try and refresh my memory. Police report, case number twenty. <laughs> Date, January 24th, 2019. Reporting officer, Spike Lee. Prepared by Christopher Kipekin, however you pronounce it. Uh, Incident. In the late months of 2017, Lee, hereafter referred to as the director, began shooting a film based on the memoir of one Ron Stallworth, which would premiere in the spring of the following year. The director used Stallworth's story and recollections as a springboard to examine the pervasiveness of systematic racism and ways which it might be combated. Subsequently, two as-yet-unnamed podcast co-hosts have produced a piece of content based on an analysis of the director's work. Excellent. All right! I enjoyed it very much. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we are going to talk about Black Klansmen. We are recording this on a Thursday, and the Oscar nominations came out on Tuesday, and Spike Lee received his first ever nomination as Best Director, which I found both, as in most things having to do with race in America, kind of shocking and totally not surprising at all. Kind of shocking because I was like, are you serious? Spike Lee's never been nominated as Best Director over... He's been making movies for probably 30, 35 years. Do the Right Thing itself was uh, 89. God, that's crazy. Such a good movie. Um, Anyway, before we get that, um, I do have some viewer mail. Great. The first is an email, which was sent to the pod, which you can do if you're listening. You can email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com. This comes from our loyal listener, Becca from Cricklewood. Oh! You remember Becca? Of course, yes, the British lady. Yes, the British lady. Or so she says, because then she talked about getting on the F train, and I don't know if Cricklewood Britain- Well, she's an expat. She lives here now. She's, okay. Yeah. Um, I just, she is from Cricklewood. Originally. Even though she lives here, it's a little more, you know, Chris is now peeling back the veil of like, this is how you make interesting content, Chris. Like, Becca from Brooklyn, okay. (laughs) Becca from Cricklewood, a little more interesting to the listener. But now that you've popped that balloon. Okay, anyway, Becca from Cricklewood- writes, Dear Chris and Jason, I was sorry to hear about Chris's recent French press coffee injury. 
This happened to a good friend of mine last year, and she also wound up in urgent care. Ouch. In this instance, I would advise Chris to remove his blindfold when plunging the cafetiere. I don't know what that is. No, in all seriousness, I recommend switching to a Chemex. Better tasting coffee and less risk of nipple burns. I appreciated your animated discussion of Bird Box, which I've not seen and will now definitely not bother with. (laughs) And also its cultural impact and appeal. It's precisely this sort of quote, reading around the text, end quote, approach to cinema criticism that I've grown to value from the pod, which is why the Vice episode from a few weeks ago left me cold. Huh. Jason, while it was made abundantly clear that you really didn't like the film at all, you seem to have had very little else to say about it, other than that it didn't work on any level. As I've not yet seen Vice, with or without blindfold, I cannot pass judgment on the film itself, but as a self-proclaimed bleeding heart champagne socialist, I was admittedly excited to see a takedown of one of this century's great Satans. I'm grateful that thanks to your episode, I now won't bother, but would have valued a smidge more context, historical, cultural, critical, etc., in the vein of your unpacking of Bird Box. Jason, to this point, and as it pertains to Cheney, I'd be happy to send you some relevant articles from The Nation, which I know you'd appreciate. Keep up the good work. I'm hooked in solidarity. Becca from Crickerwood. Now, Chris, first of all, going back to your French press coffee injury which many people express concern of, that is, brings me to my second apology ah. for not taking your French press coffee injury seriously uh, when it was initially discussed. Uh, well, again, apology accepted, though I would say I didn't quite, <laughs> I mean, it hurt, but it's a funny injury. <laughs> it is a funny injury, but actually, um, I think it was Sarah who posted on the page what the boiling temperature of water was. Yes. And so. when I saw that, I thought, oh, that's pretty serious. <laughs> I, thought, I thought water was like 130. No, it's like 230 or something. It's 212, though that's in, in Fahrenheit. Oh, in, uh, what's it in Kelvin? It's probably like 300,000. Well, Kelvin is much better because everything's so much more. Uh, I don't know what a cafetiere is. Plunging the cafetiere. That I must get, be that. That must be the plunger, right? Yeah. Plunging the plunger, she could have just said. Well, let's. Anyway, I saw I Chemex. She's British. I saw Chemex yesterday. It's like a, it's like two glass made yeah. together with a wood thing and a like little- Like an hourglass. Yeah, and sand. it has like a little, like a thong, to, like a little leather 70s thong around the middle. And I do know people, uh, people swear by them. Yeah, so maybe Not try that. Not just the 70s thong. I don't know, I'm sort of attached to my French press. And look, if I were to take off the blindfold, where would the fun be? That's true. Also, Chris, I'd like to point out, oh, you know what? I can't, well, this is so weird. This is, I'm in a space-time continuum right now. You know why? Weird. Yeah. Because- you rewatched No, Spider-Verse. because I'm aware that I know something- that people don't yet know from the episode that hasn't yet been released at 319 Thursday, oh, right. whatever today is, there's a tidbit of information that I was going to reference. However, if I do reference it, by the time anyone hears what we're doing here, they will be familiar with the information I'm referring to in today's episode, which will be released in 45 minutes. Right. You understand what I'm saying? I do understand what you're saying. So I don't know whether to reference it or not reference it. And actually, I can't even remember what it was I was just going to reference. Ah, well, that, so. that certainly <laughs> makes it a lot easier. Uh, what I was going to say is, you know, it's every, you know, it's just time shifting because they'll still hear the thing that you would reference earlier than hearing this now. True. Uh, yeah, that's why, I was, that's why I was momentarily confused. Yeah. Anyway. Let's save that for another time. Anyway, Becca, thank you for writing in. One last, uh, the burn is healing pretty nicely. Uh, Look, I apologize. I didn't say I wanted to hear any more about it. (laughs) I just, but I think, I thought Becca might. Moving on to Black Klansman, which you'd seen quite a while ago. I saw when it came out, yes. And I guess has sort of an interesting trajectory in that it's one of those movies, and I would put, can you ever forgive me in this category? A movie that came back to awards life with the Tuesday morning Oscar mm. nominations because Black Klansman, I think, came out in August or something. Mm-hmm. Was nominated, as I said, for best director. Was it nominated for best picture too? I believe. I, I believe, believe it so. Was. Yes. Um, so it it garnered several awards: best supporting actor, best adapted screenplay, best film editing. Yeah best original score. So it's come back to life. I think more people will now see it, which is a good thing. Um, I think it's done fairly well for a Spike Lee movie. I looked at a couple of his box office grosses of some recent movies. It's making money. And so I think it'll get a boost from this. So I just watched it the other night. You, know, you I don't know if you rewatched it. I did it. rewatch it. You yeah. did. I'm curious if in rewatching it, you appreciated it more or less or the same as the first time you watched it. I think I appreciated it the same, but in different ways. Hmm. Um, I think I was more conscious, partially from having done the pot, you know, we've been recording this since it came out, uh, from being a little bit more conscious of the difference between 
what's true and what he did as a storyteller. Yeah. I think I, I was more impressed with some of the other performances, the subtlety of mm-hmm. some of the arguments that I think he is making that are sort yeah. of underlying it. Whereas the first time that I saw it, I was just like, this is really fun. It yeah. is such a it's such a crazy story. Yes. Like it moves. It's all, yeah. it's not an action movie per se, but it does move very quickly and covers a lot of ground. And I enjoyed it mostly on that level. It's, it's fun to watch. It's interesting. I listened to Spike talking to John Singleton about the movie and John Singleton his first question was, why all the comedy? Spike was kind of like, I don't want to say he bristled, but he sort of was like, well, there's comedy, but I mean, no one's laughing in the last scenes of the movie, which take the real footage of the Charlottesville incident and use this contemporary footage to great effect. The Spike Lee absurdist appreciation and approach to everyday things that are freighted with race and class is something that's kind of just a fun I don't want to say fun, but it is, it's a fun POV to step into and watch unfold because he has such a, it's not a jaundiced eye, but it's like, it's so sharp. It's It's, so honed and it's, and it does not pull any punches. I wouldn't shy away from using fun just because he, as a filmmaker is so, so fun. The funny parts are so well observed. And I think that actually doesn't take away from the importance of the story. In fact, to my mind, it kind of deepens it. And I don't know if we'll talk about Boots Riley's criticism Mm. of the film. Criticize this film? Of, yeah, Black... Oh, uh, I didn't Black know Anthony. that. Boots Riley, who made Sorry yeah. to Bother You, is uh, not only a filmmaker, but also an activist. And mm-hmm. he has said that there is no such thing as non-political art. And so he sees everything through that lens. And he wrote a well-reasoned and well-researched criticism of this, frankly, saying that it lets police off the hook too much. And that it's... But first of all, that it's not true. That, that actually... Th- what Ron Stallworth did, he did more about infiltrating black organizations to undermine them than he did with regards more to- More than what were shown in the movie? Yeah, oh. yeah. The undercover operation ran for three years, uh-huh. not just the two months or whatever right. that happens in this. And that he spent more time actually in, within uh, radical black organizations and he goes into the history of COINTELPRO and a lot mm-hmm. of what they did to discredit black radical organizations mm-hmm. versus what they did with white supremacist organizations like the Klan- uh, and he's like, they really didn't do very much. So mm-hmm. I don't know how true uh-huh. that is or isn't. But just the very lens of saying, like, the fact that here you have a hero who is a police officer working within the system, to my mind, he says that sort of nullifies it. And I think it actually complicates it and makes it deeper. And to me, what what's interesting about the story is, you know, this debate of can you work from within the system? And um, like a lot of Spike Lee's movies, it doesn't have an easy answer at the end. And I think that anything without an easy answer is always more interesting. Yeah, I mean, listen, you can have whatever criticism you want. I think he's missing the point that Spike is trying to make in the movie, which is if you have this real life story of Ron Stallworth, who (laughs) infiltrated the Ku Klux Klan over the telephone and worked in partnership with the fellow officer who impersonated him in front of the Klan, you have a pretty good hook and story for a movie. And to Spike Lee's credit, he uses that engine, but surrounds it with so much contemporary stuff that feels so on point Mm-hmm. I kept thinking watching this movie that it's like a pill you take after you're forced to sit through Green Book. <laughs> right? So like you've sat down. So we did it in the right order. <laughs> yeah. So like you sat down and you watch Green Book and then you're like, oh, gosh, we've come a long way. Then you watch Black Klansman and you're just like, holy shit, this country is so fucked up and has such interwoven racial problems in our cellular DNA as a nation. And it's easy to forget it. It's easy to want to sweep it under the rug. Mm -hmm. And even well-meaning people can forget. But what Spike Lee does in this movie, and so brilliantly and using the history of cinema, is show how ingrained it is. But he does it in a way that's still fun to watch this movie. It's still funny. And the scenarios are so absurd that... I found it really funny to watch the actors move through the paces of the movie. The only jarring thing for me was when Nicholas Turturro turned up. First, the primary target. Felix says you're doing it. So all you have to do is set the pocketbook on the front porch, the back porch, the sidewalk, doesn't matter. As long as it's against the building, you can plant it anywhere. I got enough C4 here to take out the whole thing. All you have to do when you placed it, hey, sweetie, you listening? All you have to do when you placed it is flip the switch. Nicholas Turturro with the thickest, deepest Brooklyn accent. <laughs> how do you end up in Colorado? And I'm like, how is he in cahoots with the Klan <laughs> in Colorado Springs? Some of the Klan guys in the movie like specifically reference Italians as something they dislike. Mm-hmm. So I was very confused as to how he ended up in the mix. 
I don't know if it's one of those things where Spike's like, that's my guy and I'm putting him in my movie. I don't really right. care. But like, he could have been one of the cops. He could have been something. That that was the only moment where I was like, <laughs> took me out of the movie, even though I'm happy to see Nick Turturro anytime. He's a hilarious presence in any yeah. movie. Or do you think he's showing something in that choice? Uh, yeah, I think maybe when you want to buy Spoiler for 2018's Black. When you want to buy uh, C4 to to blow somebody up. Doesn't matter who you get it from. (laughs) You have a very limited number of people who will sell it to you. Yeah. So you'll do it with whomever. Now let's, this guy, you know, it's not like New York has not had its own races. Own incidents mm-hmm. of racism. Maybe, maybe that was a part of. Maybe he was trying to say, like, look, when the, when it really comes down to it, like white people will f- stick together with other white people, even some white people they may not think are fully all the way yeah. white. The enemy of my enemy is yes. my friend. Anyway, let's play a clip from the movie, Chris. This is uh, one of the early scenes between John David Washington and Adam Driver, who plays uh, Adam Driver plays a more experienced police officer in the precinct, and in this clip. He has returned from his first meeting with the Klansman, John David Washington's Ron Stallworth, has been talking to on the telephone, and there were some guns brandished and things didn't go quite as easily right. as they might have expected. I didn't want to say what trap, but that Peckerwood had a gun in my face. And he was an ass hair away from pulling the trigger. And he didn't. But he could have. And then I would have been dead. For what? Stopping some jerk-offs from playing dress-up? Flip, it's intel. Well, I'm not risking my life to prevent some rednecks from lighting a couple sticks on fire. This is the job. What's your problem? That's my problem. For you, it's a crusade. Mm-hmm. For me, it's a job. It's not personal, nor should it be. Why haven't you bought into this? Why should I? Because you're Jewish, brother. The so-called chosen people. You've been passing for a wasp. Doesn't that hatred you've been hearing the clan say, doesn't that piss you off? Of course it does. Then why are you acting like you ain't got skin in the game, brother? Rookie? That's my fucking business. It's our business. I'm going to get you your membership card so you can go to the cross burning and get in deeper with these guys. John David Washington, really good. I don't think I've seen him before. I know he's in Ballers on HBO. Uh Uh-huh. I know he was a baller in college. He was a um, very serious running back. Huh. And I did not know the entire time I watched the movie that he is the son of Hollywood royalty. Yeah. It never occurred to me. Until afterwards, I think uh, I think I read it, read it just afterwards. Like, and I'm kind of glad I didn't know that in a way. I don't know why. When I figured it out, I was I was sort of like, I'm glad I didn't know that when I was watching the movie because I think I would have been watching his performance for something else. Yeah, through the filter of uh, how much uh, yeah. Denzel can I see? And then when yeah. you start to look, as I did, watch a few real clips of. Ron Stallworth, he's really perfectly cast. Oh, yeah. The voice is very similar. And uh, I thought he did a great job. I thought um, so, too. So I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing more of him. I think he's like an interesting actor. And yeah. also, did you know that he was in Malcolm X as a child? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. At the end of Malcolm X, when there's like a montage of people, he's one of the kids. Um, I liked the scene that you played very much. One of the reasons that I, again, just seeing it a, a third time, realizing I actually read a negative review of this mm-hmm. saying in some ways that it painted the clan members so broadly that they were just such so dumb I that it's like that. that you kind of lose the I can threat. See that. But I think that it kind of made an argument. I didn't realize that this scene kind of makes an argument against that. And I think the same argument that we've been making since uh, the election of 2016 that, you know, it's easy to laugh people off when they do threatening things mm-hmm. or say things that are so obviously stupid yeah. seem caricatured. And yet that can metastasize and become real over time. Mm-hmm. To the, you know, again, we, we mm-hmm. found in 2016 and every day since. Yeah. It was something so subtle that it was that it was in there that it was just sort of dropped in. And like that kind of resonance, I think, worked so much better than actually, you know, not to criticize a Oscar nominee for best director. Mm-hmm. That resonance worked to my mind a lot better than actually having them say, uh, make America great again. Yeah. Or some yeah. of the other things that were that were yeah. a little too heavy handed. Well, I think that's the Spike Lee-ness yeah. is the is the the characterization of the clan members in the movie. Um, you actually have a gamut. I think you have a, you have like an arc. You have on the one hand, the very funny actor. I don't know. I have to look up his name. Who's the guy that <laughs> plays know. the big fat guy that's drunk all the time. And, and was in, um. That guy's fucking hilarious. In I, Tanya. Did you see I, Tanya? Yes. Oh, that's right. That's who he is. Yeah. Okay. He's I was wondering so where I'd seen him before. What's his name? He is fucking I had looked it up yesterday. Hilarious. I mean, he's really funny. Paul Walter Hauser. Paul Walter Hauser. And the guy from the hilarious NBC hospital drama plays the glasses wearing mm-hmm. uh, lead guy. From New Amsterdam. From that New, guy was from, good. From Amsterdam. He's a good actor. Uh, but I kept, I couldn't not think of New Amsterdam 
promos whenever he was on the screen. <laughs> you know, we all feel like the system is too big to change. We'll call you when we have a doctor available, okay, hon? But we are the system, and we need to change. Let's be doctors again. But anyway, to get back to your point, yes, but I think, like, for Spike, you can almost feel him on the page, like, saying, well, I should give these guys a little more depth, a little more, make them a little more real. But you also feel him at the end of the day just, like, throwing the pencil down and going, fuck that. These guys are <laughs> stupid-ass motherfuckers. Like, they're dumb-ass yeah. motherfuckers. And in his book, um, the real Ron says that himself. He's like, look, these were not the brightest guys the other way to go, of course, is that like malevolently intelligent, sinister, like like a Dick Cheney type mm -hmm, to throw mm -hmm. back to Becca from Cricklewood. But I do think that amongst the Klansmen in the movie, there, there are differentiations between how they're presented. The hospital guy that we were just talking about. Uh, the New Amsterdam guy. New Amsterdam uh, guy. What's his name? Let's give him a proper name. He deserves more than to be called New Amsterdam guy well, by a little. Says you. Ryan Eagold. Ryan Eagold. Hmm. Okay, tough actor name, but okay. Um, <laughs> like, I'm going to say Ryan Eagle? No. Ryan Eagle. Oh, well, maybe No, no, no. Eggold. Sorry? Lego my ego, Chris. Two Gs <laughs> means ego. Ryan Eggold. Ryan Eggold I thought was very good, and he was, he was one of, he's like done in the way that he's not as outwardly, identifiably crazy as the Itania guy is. Right. And he's not as comically unhinged as Jasper Pakanin is as Felix Kendrickson. Yes. Another person I thought did a great job was the woman who played uh, Felix Kendrickson's wife. Ashley Atkinson. Loved who, her. Fun fact, I've worked with a couple times. Have you really? She looks I, familiar to me. Why is that? Um, she's a New York actor, and so uh, she was you great. might well have seen her on stage, though I can't think of uh, stage things that she's done. I know she was- Oh, she was in Fat Pig. Opposite Jeremy Piven. Oh, was she? Yeah. Oh, the Neil LeBute play. That's right. So you probably seen her in that. But uh, she was on an episode of The Truth that I wrote, which is a- uh, What's The Truth? That's a fiction podcast. Oh, yeah, the fiction podcast. Ashley was also in uh, a short film that I wrote. Really? Uh, yeah. Which was? It was called uh, Love Life, directed by Joe Plummer. Really? I don't uh, think I've seen that. Oh, I thought I sent it to you. Yeah, we did this, I think, in 2015. It was um, all I did direct address. Like, it was about online dating. Mm. And uh, I had written and directed a uh, different thing called Trying. It was Try very sure. That's how I got into the Werner Herzog uh, film class. I had oh, to okay. write and direct something for that. Oh, I don't think I saw Love Life. So she 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 was opposite you in this, Ashley Atkinson? She was one of the people, you know, because it was about online dating, about being on an OkCupid-ish yeah. site. And so you would have so certain people pop up. And then you had her character was somebody who was constantly uh, messaging somebody but not getting any response and kind of- uh, She's really good. You know, she's excellent. She gives what could on, on the page even be a pretty nothing part. Sorry to interrupt, but I brought some cheese dip and crackers. Would you like some? Thanks, honey. Thank you. Walter. Make them remember who we are and what we stand for. We are the organization. Oh, we oh, have to. Oh, I read something in the Gazette that this nigger named Carmichael held a rally and that some college nigger girl from the Baboon Student Union was attacking our police. I mean, this girl is dangerous. Here, I clip the article. That'll be all. <clears throat> Someday, you're going to need me to do something for you. Just wait and see. And I will be right in here. She imbues it with a lot of interesting things and a lot of interesting things between her and the actor playing her husband, who it was the only one of these guys that I felt was a little too dialed up. Yeah. Like he was, but but I guess you need someone who always is on to Ron Stallworth the entire time and is crazy to everyone else, including his fellow Klansmen, right. but actually happens to be right yeah. <laughs> that this guy is an imposter. Uh, I thought the actor was pretty intense. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and scary. Um, he also looks like, he's about that he looks like, uh, I had like junior high school flashbacks. Yes. Like he looked like the kind of kid who would like torture bugs and like kind yes. of be a little bit of a bully. He just had that kind of face. Bullcast and Crew is brought to you by Two Different Guys on a Bench, a new comedy series from American Vandal star Ryan O'Flanagan. Two Different Guys on a Bench, where Ryan talks to Ryan on a bench. We keep the comedy simple, folks. Two different guys on a bench videos can be found now on Facebook at Chuckler Comedy. 
Like and follow Chuckler for the latest and greatest short-form comedy videos. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. Two other good shout-out roles. Always good to see the other Buscemi. <laughs> your reaction, Sorry, Michael. Your but reaction to the other Totoro? That was my reaction to see the other Buscemi the whole time. I, was I like, love seeing him. Is that Steve Buscemi? It can't be. Maybe it is. I he love Michael Buscemi. He is good. Yeah. I mean, he's one of those guys where, like, you see him very infrequently, but when you do see him, and, and I believe this is a quality that he himself owns. I don't think that I'm ascribing this to him because I would feel fondly towards Steve Buscemi. Right. I just think that he's Buscemi-esque in his look, but different. Uh, but he's also a little less of a caricature, like a comic caricature, just in the, the way his face looks and his voice. Like he doesn't have that thing that Steve Buscemi has that way. But he has it a little bit. So it's mm -hmm. sort of like it's under there, but he's he's a little more normal looking, I want to say. Yeah. Uh, but he was great. And the other guy that I loved, and I was like, oh, this is some serious Hollywood math that we're doing right now, is Frederick Weller, who plays the creepily evil racist cop. Right. This is where I would have to diverge from what Boots Riley is saying. I mean, there's plenty of bad cops in the movie yeah. that are doing bad stuff. If anything the sort of comeuppance that the Frederick Weller character gets at the end of the movie is a little trite. It's a little wrapped up a little neatly in order was, to have something bad happen to him. That was part of the criticism too. It's like, cops wouldn't do that to another Well, he's saying like they would cover up for him. Sort of. like, yeah. And certainly like that it kind of wiretap. In, in fact, the movie ended perfectly well about 10 minutes before then. And then this whole kind of tacked on end section where this this whole thing is has this feel good resolution at a bar felt a little tacked on maybe it was maybe it was something the studio sort of asked to put on I don't know but um but anyway he is so I looked at him I was like God he looks like Peter Weller <gasps> RoboCop right yeah so I started looking him up and he is Peter Weller is his uncle wow I think wait. His father is Peter, is Peter Weller's brother. Yeah, that would make him. Yeah, that would make Peter Weller. No kidding. No, wait, no, no. He's Peter Weller's cousin. His father and Peter Weller are brothers. Right. Wait, their fathers are brothers. Right. So that would make him. <laughs> this is uh, this like is my dis nephew. This is disconcerting. Is my like sister's math. kid. Yeah, but your nephew is your. Well, I'm just saying the IMDb page says he's the cousin of actor Peter Weller, but I don't think that's true. Their fathers oh, are brothers. That means he's the nephew of actor Peter Weller. Yeah. Anyway, you know, that's not, that's a thankless role. Yeah. It's cartoonish. Mm -hmm. But again, I think that given the tone of where we are in the movie, which has an absurdist comic tone throughout, it's, we're not here for nuanced characterization as much as we are, as you said, to move the story forward through the, through the beats that it's going to go through. And I think Spike Lee is such an... Uh, tour director like he's got uh yeah he's got his vision he's got his vision and his way of doing things and some of the things are more stylized yeah. and that's actually one of the things that that i love about his work is that he does allow that kind of uh, stylization he does allow it to be a little bit arty a little bit sort of out there yeah and that's just part of who he is and so it always it feels right to me so another interesting peter weller correlation <laughs> to the cast is so Peter Weller was RoboCop yes. in RoboCop 1 and RoboCop 2. But not. But not in RoboCop 3. Yes. RoboCop 3, he's played by, very capably, and I think if I thought about movies where you have a, a, a main character who's replaced by another actor, mm -hmm. this made me think this might be one of the best replacements of a main actor ever in the history of a movie franchise. Yeah. Because Robert John Burke, who plays the chief in Black Klansman, replaced Peter Weller as RoboCop in RoboCop 3. I think he did a pretty damn good job as RoboCop. Drop the gun. You are under arrest. Thank you for your cooperation. Good night. Police officer, no loitering. You called for backup? I did not see RoboCop 3, even though it, that one I think is actually written, uh, that's the one where he fights ninjas. And so it was based <laughs> yeah, on- Yeah, what's your, what's your take? Well, it was written by- You say uh, that Frank, as if that's a bad thing. Well, 
you know, certainly not in 1980, whenever, but it was written by Frank Miller, who, uh, yes. the comic book writer, who uh, he loves ninjas and he loves putting uh, ninjas and stuff. Right. So, yeah, just an interesting aside that yes. you have the Peter Weller connection. But um, no Peter Weller. But no Peter Weller. I love Peter Weller. Yeah, me too. Did you ever see, all right, now I'm going to have to look at Peter Weller. Hold Naked on. Naked Lunch? No. Um, what's the one with, uh, isn't Adam he West. in The Rapture? I don't know. You ever see The Rapture? Uh, no. God, that's a great movie. Um, I think Isn't it's that a him. little Jesus-y? It is, but it, it's a great, I mean, he's probably not even in it. Wait, you know what's so funny? I always look up things backwards. Like instead of just looking up the movie title, I look up Peter Weller right. and I'm like going through all of his uh, credits to see if the Rapture's there <laughs> rather than just looking up. No, I'm sorry. Uh, it's, so the Rapture is a Michael Tolkien movie uh, from 1991. And it's the, the tagline on IMDb is a telephone operator living an empty, amoral life finds God and loses him again. And it stars Mimi Rogers, who's great in it. Um, and David Duchovny. And David Duchovny. Um, I could have sworn that Peter Weller was in it, but maybe I'm wrong. James LaGrosse, who I love, he's in it. Will Patton, mm-hmm. the always useful Will Patton. Will Patton's great. He's a good villain and everything. Anyway, this is a really interesting movie that I'm not describing very well. It's Michael Tolkien, you know, so it's about Hollywood and also about religion and belief. And this is an interesting IMDb it, page, this um, this Michael Tolkien. Oh, yeah. Michael Tolkien is he's a legend. You know what you might have been thinking of? Because I was going to guess this. The New Age, which he directed, Peter Weller was in, which I haven't seen. That was he and Judy Davis. Um, You're right. That is what I was thinking of. And Adam yes. West, I know, is also in it. That's the only reason I'd heard of it. Dude, he also wrote Gleaming the Cube. Hello. I don't know this guy's work at all, except for I had seen Changing Lanes, which I which I liked. Um, the Player? You know, I'd seen The Player. The Player is so good. I guess I thought of that as an Altman. Uh, but he wrote it. He wrote it. Right. Um, anyway, this is a really good movie. I highly recommend checking out The Rapture. Really? It's a very interesting movie that calls into question issues of faith and belief, because in the movie, The Rapture actually happens at a point where everyone thinks this woman is just insane for believing that it's forthcoming, mm-hmm. but it actually happens. And uh, it's it's crazy. It's a really interesting, weird well, movie. That sounds interesting. So it's good. So anyway, I don't want to go on a rapture jag. But, <laughs> and, uh, in rapture but, being, but Chris, rapture. I've been meaning to speak to you about matters of, spa- of space and spirituality. <laughs> uh, I'm all ears because I've never <laughs> heard of either thing. Doesn't that sound cool? Maybe we could found a religion called space and spirituality. Well, let's see if the... Uh... Spaith and Fear That's a good movie title. Spaith. Or is it a terrible one? Sometimes those are close together. It's such a fine line between stupid and, and clever. Yeah, you never know until you try. Yeah. Well, if it makes you feel any better, if you do Google Spaith and Fear it shows your results for faith and spirituality. Hmm. Well, that, that tells me I'm onto something. Yeah, I think so. If you could monetize every click, every time somebody <laughs> makes that mistake... One of the things that was interesting in the beginning of Black Klansman was we see shots from both uh, D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, mm-hmm. which is considered, he's considered the father of modern cinema. Mm-hmm. And we also see the justifiably famous crane shot from Gone with the Wind, which is the shot where mm-hmm. we're, we're looking out over a vast field of bodies. Right. And Spike was talking in that talk I was listening to about how when he was in film school, they would show Birth of a Nation as a purely technical masterpiece in terms of all of these things that were invented in this film. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that Spike talks about is, ironically, he invented cross-cutting in that film. And Spike was kind of laughing. He's like, I do that in Black Klansman in the scene between uh, the Harry Belafonte story, which is a true story, by the way. Mm -hmm. The story of the lynching that he's talking about is is an actual thing that that I think Harry Belafonte witnessed. I know Harry Belafonte is playing a character, like an actual federal judge. Oh, he is? So it may have been the federal judge. But it might have been based on Jerome Turner's actual life. Yeah, he's cross-cutting between that and the Klan ceremony. Mm -hmm. So- Spike saying, you know, when he was shown this movie at NYU Film School, he wasn't given any of the cultural context that like Becca from Cricklewood was requesting in our Vice or Bird Box reviews. They were just talking about it purely like this was the first time this happened in a film. But he's sitting there as a young black kid from Brooklyn going like, what the fuck am I watching? Like, so offensive to him without any commentary about why 
it's portrayed the way it was portrayed. But then in this podcast, he's talking about being able to appreciate the filmic stuff that it spawned, but also being able to put it into the context of the time that it was released and written. And the same thing with Gone with the Wind. And he talked about Hattie McDaniel, who won the Academy Award, yes. but wasn't allowed to go to the ceremony, which I didn't know. I didn't know that either. Yeah, so it was 1939. I didn't look this up. I should have looked it up. But when she won Best Supporting Actress for Gone with the Wind, she's obviously the first African-American actress to win an Academy Award, but he said she wasn't allowed to attend the ceremony, which again, anything having to do with race in America is both shocking and surprising and totally not shocking and not surprising. So anyway, those are the things that like Spike Lee can't approach a piece of subject matter without being informed by all of this stuff. And when you listen to him talk, he's a black man, but what he is kind of first and foremost is a film nerd. Like yeah. when you listen to him talk about movies, his favorite movies, he's a hardcore film nerd, yeah. capital N. You know, when you talk about Birth of a Nation being shown yeah. to him in school, I don't know if you read the anecdote, you know, his uh, short film that he made almost yes. got him to get thrown out of <laughs> thrown out of film school. And it was in response, it was about Birth of a Nation and sort of in response to this experience. Right, it was like a young black filmmaker gets hired to remake Birth of a Nation <laughs> for a studio. <laughs> uh, like, because that can be a tough thing to do, I would think, when something touches you or, or yeah. so personally, to be able to have enough distance to look at it intellectually in a way to deconstruct it to make a film about it. And then all of these years later in Black Klansman to use not only the film techniques yes. that made it so important sort yes. of against itself. Against itself, yeah. Uh, I think is wonderful. And, and it's why it becomes interesting to know more about a filmmaker himself, yeah. him or herself, to sort of have some context and to sort of see those personal threads. Full Cast and Crew is brought to you by Out of Jack's Mind a new comedy short video series from Jack Plotnick, co-writer and director of the Sony Pictures feature film Space Station 76, and current recurring guest on Grace and Frankie and Z Nation. Out of Jack's mind, like and follow at Chuckler Comedy on Facebook or Chuckler.com. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. Another thing I love about Spike, I think much like myself, he seems to be someone who, and I'm talking, this is more to do with like his takes on things like basketball or sneakers or fashion or other things that aren't related to race in America. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he talked to John Singleton about in this interview that I listened to was that, you know, he's like, I've made a lot of different movies and not all of them are all about race in America. I get painted with that brush because it's easier just to tag me with that. But if you look at 25th Hour, Inside Man, Inside Man's a great Spike Lee movie, by the way. Uh, That's a really watchable, good thriller with great performances. But anyway, one thing I always love about Spike is when you listen to him talk, he's just like an emotional guy. He's Mm -hmm. very like, he speaks very slowly. He speaks very in a measured way, but kind of like me, he has a lot of sort of emotional, irrational takes on things that I appreciate. (laughs) So like when he's talking about something, you can hear him thinking of like the politic thing he should say, and then he can't, he has to just tell it like it is in a great way. Yeah. And it makes me laugh. I I, listening to him talk. He's, he's, he'll be asked like a pointed question about Trump or something. And you can hear him kind of go like, and then he's like, if you have children, if you have grandchildren, if you, if you think you might have grandchildren some point in the future, you got to get rid of this guy, man. Can't have this guy in the office again. Like he just has these hilarious takes about politics and things that are so on point. And the way that he kind of ties this movie into Charlottesville, Trump, it's that stuff that's like, Trump is so clownish that it's easy to think about the Trump Tower staircase presidential announcement Mm -hmm. moment when when he famously said that Mexicans coming across the border were rapists and drug dealers. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. It's easy to kind of like put that into this easier to carry bundle on our back that's like, oh, Trump is so insane and crazy and says terrible things. But like when you hear Spike talk about it, it, it just, it's, you're, you're reminded how damaging and how plugged in to the racist history of the founding of America that comment is. Mm-hmm. And that that current not only is still present in our culture, <laughs> But our very president is the embodiment of something like 
what occurred in Charlottesville, rather than repudiate that, he embraced that side mm -hmm. of it and said there were good people on that side when the people on that side are shown chanting anti-Jewish slogans. And I thought, I don't know why I found it kind of surprising when he really had that picture of the woman who was killed in the car accident in mm -hmm. Charlottesville. Heather Heyer. Heather Heyer. And made a point in the podcast, which was recorded the same day, a year later of her death. That's when he was talking to John Singleton about this movie uh, in the summer, whenever they, whenever the movie mm -hmm. was released. Mm -hmm. And he kind of put her in the center of this thing as like a victim of this stuff and a white victim at that. Mm -hmm. So even though as I watch the movie, there's times it kind of drags a little or feels like maybe we're meandering a bit. The plot is not entirely an engine that moves like A, B, C, D, E. It's a little bit more amorphous than that. Even though that felt the case sometimes, the scenes and the performances were crackling with that Spike Lee voice. And I just, again, having watched Green Book last week, I found myself going, this is cleansing to, to listen to this truth come through yeah. with this acid wit. And it's not heavy handed because the humor that he still imbues and infuses it with is present, mm -hmm. you know? And that's something that, I just appreciate in his filmmaking. Even the points where it is heavy handed, it all seems of a piece because I think the driving force, not the plot, mm -hmm. it's the questions that he's bringing up and he's yes. bringing up so many of so them. So many. And he is making no attempt to answer them. For example, when Robert John Burke's character tells yeah. them like, not only end this operation, yeah. shred it. But all good things have to come to an end. What does that mean? Budget cuts. And when did this happen, last night? I wish I had a choice, but my hands are tied with this inflation. Besides, there no longer appears to be any credible threats. Sounds like we did too good a job. Well, that's not a bad legacy to leave. And now, I need you, Ron Stallworth, to destroy all evidence of this investigation. What? We prefer that the public never knew about this investigation. Uh -huh. Cease all further contact with the Ku Klux Klan. Effective immediately. There's no reason given, but it doesn't... That actually goes against what Boots Riley was trying to say. I mean, isn't the point that he is trying to say, okay, that was good work. Let's just pretend it never happened. I, I mean, guess I'm... I'm it's just like I'm what you, it's what you choose to look at in the... I mean, it's sure. there. But to my mind, the fact that it happened, and it didn't bother me that there was no real reason given. It's just when the surrealism of being a black man in this yeah. situation, the rules are not always going to make sense, that things will change, and you have to constantly be pivoting and being... Mm -hmm ready for another indignity, another difficulty. That to me seemed what that scene was about as opposed to a plot hole. That same character who was excited to arrest the racist cop five minutes before then is- Well, wait, arresting the racist cop, isn't that the last thing that happens in the movie? No. Does they that happen before the shuts the whole thing they down? They arrest the, ra the oh, racist okay. cop, then they shut say. the thing down. Then, and actually I thought the very, very end, he and Patrice are back together. Yeah. And again, there's part of me that's like, gosh, you really had been lying to her a lot, but you also saved her That's life. That's the life so. of a cop, man. <laughs> and But then they get a knock on the door and they look out the window to see a cross burning in the distance. That's, oh, right, that's right, right. End. That's the last scene. And to my mind, that's well, a very- Well, then we go into the Charlottesville stuff, I believe. Yes, yes, yes. But as far as the action goes, I thought that was a very pointed ending of whatever victory he might have had, whatever yes. progress they might have made, you can't be too comfortable because this is ever present. Felix is dead, spoiler, and you know, a couple <laughs> people are dead, a couple people are in jail, but that, well, a, yeah, that flaming cross will still pop up. It's a rebuke to what Chief Bridges tries to do in closing down the investigation and saying, okay, we're done with that. Yeah. It's over. Congratulations. We wiped the Klan out of Colorado City or whatever town. Yeah, yeah. I like the colors. I liked the, the 70s-ness. Yeah. <laughs> The clothes. Well, that was another thing. They put it in a very definite point in time where I get one of the criticisms was that the true events, as much as they are true, happened much later than the time that they put it. But again, this is one of those, unlike most of the based on the true stories that we've talked about, this is one where I do feel like, and again, maybe it's because I like Spike Lee as a director and I like his style and his, mm -hmm. he is so present in what he makes that it doesn't feel, when they talk about it being based on a true story, it's like, yeah. but it's also a Spike Lee movie, so I know everything's yeah. gonna be filtered through that. 
Um, but this is where I think the compromises and changes, I think, were to affect. I think it does come to such an important and complicated point at the end, yeah. unlike some of the other things where I think the changes are just make it cleaner and neater. Yeah, you know, it's in the context of what we're living through, it's a necessary and really good movie. Mm-hmm. And I thought that the performances all had something that maybe some of the writing didn't always have. You know, like some point in the middle part, you're kind of like, where are we going with this? Like, mm-hmm. And some of the more, frankly, some of the more like plot-based stuff would have been a little more welcome in places. Mm-hmm. Like if we really just had the mechanics of a plot from point A to point B, because some of the stuff was kind of confusing. This bomb, plan B, plan A, and the the black activists. I mean, there's a lot going on. But listen, it's a bookend. If mm-hmm. you're going to watch Green Book, watch Black Klansman and you'll... I'm not going to say you're going to end up in the middle, but you'll have a corrective. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. <laughs> I mean, talk ways, about two different approaches to race in America. Like, two different approaches. Like that's what Peter Farrelly is allowed to have. Here are two people both taking source material that involves mm-hmm. an African-American experience and bringing it to the screen. And one filmmaker brings it to the screen and in doing so turns it into the story of the white person in the movie in Spike Lee's movie, it's never Adam Driver's story. It's never David Duke's story, who, by the way, I thought Topher Grace did a really good job as David Duke. I was interested in his weird David Duke, who was not easily dismissed. He both played him for laughs, but also had a kind of, I can't believe I'm about to use this word in relation to Topher Grace, gravitas. Whoa. (laughs) Has that, ever sure been, that, has that ever been used to refer to him? I think even he would be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa, whoa, I'm, whoa. <laughs> but I thought he did have a little like weight and import behind his his characterization of David Duke. Oh, I'm quite well. Thank you. Uh, what can I do you for? I, I desperately want to participate in my chapter's honorary events, but I can't until I receive my membership card. Of course, that's something I can help you with. Great. Um, well, who am I speaking with? This is David Duke. Did you just say your name was David Duke? Last time I checked... Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. That that David Duke? Yes, that Grand Wizard and National Director, yeah. I'm honored to be speaking with you, sir. I'm not afraid to say it. I consider you a true white American hero. Is there any other kind? <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> I'm just happy to be talking to a true white American. Amen. Now, about that membership card. Yeah, Ron, I understand the situation. Uh, we've had some administrative problems here. It's caused a little bit of a backlog. Tell you what, I'm going to see to it personally that your membership card is processed, approved, and sent out today. How's that sound? Thank you, sir. I can't express to you how much this means to me. Ron, please. Pleasure's all mine. He made him dangerously funny. Yeah. I, I think I <laughs> I think I agree because, like, I think part of the, the joke was how, like, shitty his office was and yes. how boring it all looked. But then there were moments, I'm thinking particularly when- um, He's a huckster. When- He's always been a huckster, David Duke, of the worst kind. Like, even when you see him quoted for real at the end of the movie with his plastic surgery face and his attempt to insert himself into the Charlottesville stuff, he's still the huckster that he always was. I thought they did a really good job of putting him in that office. And like when when Ron calls and his, can't get his, he needs his, he needs, yeah. this is like, this is the Spike Lee thing. You got to have the card to do the cross burning. Like you can't go to the cross burning without paid the, up. You got to yeah. be paid up. You have to have your membership card. And I think it's such a Spike Lee thing to go down the rabbit hole of the minutia of like, man, my card hasn't arrived because David Duke is like not really on top of. It's not an organization. It's right. Like, it's he's him. Sitting, he's it's sitting him in his office by himself. <laughs> and he's like, yes, we've had some real tie ups with our paperwork lately. Uh, hilarious. Yeah. Um, well, I was going to say, and then, you know, uh, when Ron Stallworth becomes, strangely, <laughs> and I'll just sort of accept it because it's the movie, becomes the bodyguard specifically for David Duke. Yes. And the interactions between them, I did see, like you said, some of the gravitas or, or menace that this man yeah. could have had when he actually was yeah. not just a paper pusher, not yes. just hanging out with a bunch of, uh, can we say cracker? Hanging out with a yeah. bunch of crackers. But when he actually was dealing with a black man- you could see the like genuine cold hatred. Yes. And-, and you know, it's funny. Spike says that David Duke called Ron Stallworth when this movie was about to be released. And they had a conversation. And he said, 
Spike didn't know if David Duke had seen the movie yet, but he was like, of course he's going to see it. Yeah. Like he's a prominent character. Like you're going to see it, whatever you say. But he told, he told Ron Stolmer that he saw and liked Malcolm X. He said that I saw Malcolm X. I really liked it. And Ron Stolmer was like, what? He's like, yeah, Malcolm and I, man, we, we wanted the same thing. And Spike's like, I think David only watched the first hour of the movie. <laughs> like he didn't get to see where Malcolm changed to by the end. So I don't think he watched the whole three hour movie. Another interesting thing that Spike mentioned and was very pointed to mention was that originally this movie was going to be Jordan Peele's to direct. Hmm. Jordan Peele's a producer of the movie, but that Jordan Peele, Spike says in this interview, is like, he didn't have to call me. He didn't have to call me and offer me the opportunity to direct this, but he did. I thought that was interesting too, yeah. that it's sort of in Jordan Peele having a pretty insanely great year and a half or two years as a filmmaker um, with some interesting projects to come out. Yeah. Can't wait for Twilight Zone. Hello. Are you psyched for that? I'm very psyched for it. I'm also psyched for us. Have you seen the trailer for that? His, you know what? Follow-up. I haven't. Is it a good? Is it, it good? Yeah. It looks really good. And okay. yeah, the only reason I was sort of a little bit less about the Twilight Zone is because they haven't released any footage yet. So Why, the trailer like, isn't a footage trailer? Is it like a teaser? For the Twilight Zone? Oh, no. I thought you meant for us. Sorry. For us, the trailer looks awesome. And with Twilight Zone, it's still abstract. It's still abstract. Me, yeah. You know? um, I hope he's doing the voiceover. I hope he's doing the Rod Serling voiceover for the Twilight Zone. Yeah, I hope so, too. Hello. Well, maybe that's um, the answer. Maybe that's <laughs> the him answer. Now. So, yeah, those are my thoughts. Um, well, Chris, if you have nothing else to say about Black Klansmen, we will move on to... Headlines. Headlines. Um, this is the thing that I was going to think about saying, but I wasn't sure if people were going to have heard it already, but they, they will have heard it in the episode that is now live, even though we're now recording. So again, in the time-space continuum, in the challenged mathematics of Jason Silo's mind, it's 412. Isn't that the stoner code, 412? <laughs> or that's 420. 420. Okay. Um, I'm not a stoner, so I don't know those insider stoner yeah, things absolutely. like you do. <laughs> with your edibles and your chem Chemex coffee maker and your CBD oils. Anyway. I'm trying to smoke out of this French so press the, and it's just so not working. In the episode that has just been released 13, now, 13 minutes ago, it's now 413, we asked of Matt, the engineer, uh, if he had played the guitar line, which which signals the um, Rants and Raves portion. Rants and Raves, yeah. And you guessed that he did not play that guitar portion. And I said, no, I don't think so. I think Matt plugged his axe into the board and ripped off some tasty chords. And I don't want to take a victory lap around the studio, but I just want to say, <laughs> as everyone now knows, I was right. It's toward the end. So if they're listening at double time, maybe <laughs> they would know at this point. Oh, speaking of that, people do that. Apparently people listen to podcasts on double time. That's I mean, true. come on, people. Give me I, a break. I you do, do it. I do. Well, I do Chris, one and a half. Two is Chris, too much, but one and a half. Why? I think because everybody seems wittier. I want to hear what it sounds like right now from the for the next section of our conversation. Please, Matt, play us at <laughs> one and a half, half one and, one and half a half speed. time. What does it sound like? It it sounds a little bit faster, and so you get more information in. I don't you know like this. I, I think I this know. is a millennialification of our culture. Which, by the way, it's a problem we've been having for many every new communication. Again, you can't complain about the same thing. I saw a thing the other day. Is like people are more people are listening to podcasts at two times speed, and you know what, people, just stop. Okay, just stop. That leads me to uh, my headlines, Chris. Okay, great. Okay. Um, I don't know. Do you want to get into talking about the Academy Award nominations? Uh, not, not really, but we can. Uh, well, geez, with that sort of... <laughs> I, guess, I guess, fine. If it, well, I mean, yesterday you were too busy on Tuesday to record what I wanted to record, which was like, <laughs> I was up early to watch the nominations, which I think is exciting and I think sets the stage for it, granted. The Oscars and the awards are inherently stupid and not at all designed to actually reward what might or might not be the best of anything. Because how do you really gauge or judge that? You listen to what I think. <laughs> so since they don't ask me, it's invalid. However- My point, that's what I was going to get at. The, pa- the pageantry of it all and the up or down nature of it and the business aspect of it is interesting to me because I do think movies sink or swim based on on what happens here, and I think a couple of interesting things, a couple of movies that I think had a little life pumped back into them, Black Klansman, as we've talked about, mm-hmm. Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant, both nominated for Can You Ever Forgive Me, which had been kind of forgotten in the previous award shows. But man, you can't get rid of Glenn Close. I mean, you, 
It's, I don't know. This must be some performance because it, it is. And I'm, I'm, every week I whipsaw back and forth between, I have to obviously see this movie, but if it's not amazing, I'm going to be like even more angry about it than I irrationally already am. <laughs> If that's even possible. So next week, we'll be talking about the wife. But the one category that I wanted to talk about was uh, best actor, best lead actor. Mm, haven't heard of it. <laughs> Christian Bale for Vice, Bradley Cooper for A Star is Born, Willem Dafoe for At Eternity's Gate, Rami Malek for Bohemian Rhapsody, Viggo Mortensen for Green Book. Uh, and I'm laughing because <laughs> there's only one that I haven't seen, and that's the one that I want to win. <laughs> Which is the Willem Dafoe one? Willem Dafoe, I haven't seen that. I don't even know that yet. Willem Dafoe was in a movie. Yeah. Isn't he play Vincent Van Gogh? Play, exactly, yeah. And it's directed by friggin' uh, Julian Schnabel. <clears throat> Do you not like Julian Schnabel's movies? Did you not love The Diving Bell and the Butterfly? Didn't see it. What about Basquiat? Didn't see it. Wait, I, Give me some other ones. Give me some other ones. Uh, before Night Falls. Is that the one with the motorcycles and <laughs> no, riding around in Cuba? The, the, That's riding around in Cuba. In well, motorcycle. I mean, it's, I think it's a, in Cuba, but in a prison. Uh, I'm pretty sure there's a motorcycle riding scene. I don't. Yeah, think that's the is. one with what's his name? Uh, you're thinking of Javier Bardem? Right. No. Oh, uh, wait. I mean, yes, Before yeah. Night Falls does have Javier Bardem. Yeah, and he rides a motorcycle. I think he's in a prison the whole time. No. I thought you were thinking of Gael Garcia Barnal, who, ra- who rides a motorcycle as um, che young Che Guevara. In what? The young Che Guevara story or whatever it's called. You mean Che? This two-part? <laughs> no, that's the Steven Soderbergh old Che Guevara story. That I saw. Julian Schnabel did not direct that. I'm pretty sure there's a scene where Gael Garcia Bernal and uh, what's his name from No Country for Old Men, Javier Bardem. Javier Bardem also ride a motorcycle together in Cuba. Yeah. Aren't they like lovers or something? Could be. Yeah. In the movie? Isn't it a story of forbidden love? I'm not sure if we're talking about the Che movie about- No, or about no. Before we're talking Night about the Before Night Falls I haven't movie. seen it. What do you I mean? Just, oh. <laughs> I just know that Julian Schnabel directed it. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, let's see. Wait, is Gael Garcia Bernal in this? I, no, I mean, he's not in Before Night Falls. Are you sure? Maybe I'm thinking of something else. I think you're thinking of the- <laughs> Oh boy, <laughs> speaking uh, like, of a loop in the time space. Well, going back to your original point, <laughs> does Willem Dafoe try to pull off a French accent? Like, I just can't imagine that the New Yorkness doesn't come through in whatever accent work he's doing in that film. I think he's also from Wisconsin. Van Gogh? Willem Dafoe. <laughs> no, Van Gogh is from Yeah, Holland. but Willem Dafoe has such a New York accent, doesn't he? Willem Dafoe? Really? I never think of it. Just- I think of him as having a New York accent. I mean, when we did Light Sleeper, which people haven't heard, again, space-time continuum. Matt, give me a little cool, cool <laughs> space-time continuum sound effect here. Something in a, in a zither, or a, what's it, a hammer dulcimer? No. No, not a hammer dulcimer. This is not, a, what's this the, not an Appalachian uh, quilting circle, for crying out loud. That's a theremin. Theremin. That's yeah. Something in a theremin. Hammer dulcimer. <laughs> <laughs> no, when we did um, Light Sleeper. Yes. He's so New York. He's such a he's such a, qu- a quintessential New York guy. I don't care where he's from. He's a New Yorker. I don't think he could do a French accent if Vincent Van Gogh were French. I want to look up other Julian Schnabel films. Though. Motorcycle Diaries. I think that's, that's what, what you I'm were thinking, thinking of. of. Okay, it's a Julian Schnabel film, isn't it? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> it's by Walter Salas. Oh, Walter Salas. Yeah. I think Walter Salas is also a painter. Is he really? I think so. Oh, no. He's a Brazilian filmmaker, right? Uh, y- yes. Are you sure? The internet has never yes, led me astray before. <laughs> Chris, Black Panther is the first superhero movie nominated for Best Picture. Exciting. Haven't seen it. You haven't seen it? No. I got a screener. Is it good? Yeah. Here's a hot take for you, Chris. I think that Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse should have been nominated in a screenplay category. And if we're picking a superhero movie to be nominated for Best Picture, I would put that in there. As, as, as far as original filmmaking goes. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to think of anything as original as Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't argue with it. Now, another big story, well, I don't know if it's a big story, but a lot of people were clamoring because Bradley Cooper wasn't nominated for Best Director. Yes. Uh, even though A Star is Born was nominated for Best Picture. Yes. And of course, there's a very simple answer, and it's twofold. The first part of the two-part answer is there's an unspoken tradition. First-time directors don't get nominated for Best Director. That's just, an, that's just a thing. That, I never thought of that. The second part is part of the first part. So in Academy Award nominations work as follows. In the Academy, you have directors, producers, actors, screenwriters, 
cinematographers, editors, right, composers. Mm-hmm. The nominations are are derived through each separate fiefdom voting for who the nominees are in their category. Because of that, and if you think about who the Academy is made up of, you got some grizzled old white guy who probably hasn't directed a movie since 1972. He's sitting in there. He gets his ballot. He's not voting for some pretty boy actor who thinks he's a director. He's going to think like the cinematographer directed the movie. Yeah. Bradley was along for the ride. So I think well, that's- just any first time director. Like, any you got to build up director. some chops. got to build up some chops. Yeah. So you're I not going to get any love as a first time director, uh, which is an interesting counterpoint to Spike Lee, who, as we said before, 35 years of making films, making some of the most important American movies of his time, never being nominated, getting a nomination yeah. on the other side of that. So those are both kind of part of the same continuum, I think, not to overuse the word continuum. Roma, of course, and The Favorite both lead all films with 10 nominations each. A Star is Born in Vice with eight nominations. Chris, I know. Eight nominations for Vice? <laughs> I mean, what, what, I what's, get- the, what's the criteria, Chris? I get Christian Bale. I get it. I get it. I understand that we live in a time where extreme weight gain or loss is deemed acting. Well, that, I mean, that's been, that's been a while now. Yeah, I know, but it's just, come on. And also, um, Emily Blunt didn't get nominated for Mary Poppins. I'm sorry. I'm still honking on Mary Poppins. Uh, have you seen it yet? Well, I want to see it when we're ready to record on it. Okay, when well, I'm ready. Happens. I'll do it right now. Uh, well, <laughs> see? I'm not going to do it right now because I haven't seen it. I don't think I'm going to have any other entertainment headlines for you unless you have anything in the headlines section. Well, if this not, is- I'd like to move on to- Rants and raves? Rants and raves. Well, this this I was thinking of as my rave, but it also counts as a headline. It's about a project called Steal Away, which is the next uh Robbie film. Dupree from the Yacht Rock classic. Nope. Why don't we steal away? Matt, we can play a little of that because we're commenting on how great a song Steal Away is by Robbie Dupree. Why don't we steal Hopefully, that music gets used in this project, which I'm very excited about. Steal Away, the jukebox musical about Robbie (laughs) Dupree. Please tell me that's what it is. A Yacht Rock jukebox musical. By the way, how huge would that be on Broadway? You don't know what Yacht Rock is? Is that like uh, Jimmy Buffett? (sighs) (laughs) I guess that's Skiff Rock. It's not a yacht. No, it's not Jimmy Buffett. (laughs) Are you serious right now? I I don't think I've ever heard of Yacht Rock. You're not a music person. No, uh, yeah, no. That's so no, weird no. to me. Yacht rock is a genre of music typically recorded from the 70s to the 80s. It can encompass certain Hall & Oates tunes, the band Ambrosia, all sorts of cheesy but technically proficient music about usually like a 1970s to early 80s version of making love. It's 1979 or 1982. You're on your yacht. It's you're kind of coked out. You're like, you had too much rum. Everything is a mess, but like the wind is blowing through your hair and you've got some of this music playing on your Mm hi-fi, right? Because that's what you listen to Yacht Rock on. And that's, that's what it's about. I'm talking Michael McDonald, right? (laughs) Talking the Eagles, you know. Is Michael McDonald never going to give you up? No, that's fucking, that's not Yacht Rock. That's Rick Astley. That's Rick Rowling. Sorry. Who's Michael McDonald? Like Rosanna, that's Yacht Rock, (laughs) okay? What a Fool Believes. Yacht Rock. Okay? Yeah, Lowdown? Yeah. Boskag's Lowdown? Yeah, I, oh, I don't know wait, most of what me. you're saying. Matt, play the intro to Boz, Skaggs, Lowdown, and Chris. Tell me this does not get you moving. That's what I'm talking about, Chris. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. So anyway, I, I don't even know how I got on this. I wasn't even, what was I talking about? Uh, I was. Oh, you were to- trying to tell me something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is nothing. Okay, to- tell me about the non- away. Charles Burnett, the filmmaker who made sure. Killer of Sheep and yes. To Sleep With Anger is attached to direct Steal Away at Amazon Studios. Steal Away deals with the daring theft and escape of Robert Smalls, a slave in 1862 Charleston who stole a paddle wheel steamer. Sounds kind of as diametrically obvious. opposed yeah. to the Robbie Dupree jukebox <laughs> I mean, musical as you could The deeper you got into that, I was like, no, oh boy, no, <laughs> oh boy, no. We are, we are definitely <laughs> not talking about that. But there is a boat involved. 
There is a boat. That's true. But let's say that's an entertainment news headline, and then my rave will just be the work of Charles Burnett in general. If you've never seen Killer of Sheep, Killer of Sheep only released in 2007. Is that true? Yeah. Because wow. they couldn't clear the music that was used in it. Oh. And Steven Soderbergh had seen it. It had been sort of floating around. He was like, this movie is so wonderful. We need it to be seen. And he helped uh, secure the music rights. I didn't so know that. It's released in 2007. Soderbergh has an interesting movie coming out too, a sports movie, <laughs> where I was like, you know, when you see like these these Soderbergh movie headlines, they're always like, Steve Soderbergh to direct film shot from inside a body during surgery. <laughs> You're like, what? Um, High Flying Bird? It's, yeah, it's premiering um, at Slamdance. I'll confess, I don't love all of Steven Soderbergh's movies. Oh, but big Soderbergh guy. I am such a huge fan of just how he's such a just do it kind of guy and trying new things. Here's just some information about it. It's, uh, it's written by Moonlight's Terrell Alvin McCraney, being released in select theaters and on Netflix on February 8th. High Flying Bird is attuned to the current sports zeitgeist. If you want to know what the next half decade of sports might look like, High Flying Bird gives you a pretty solid sketch. It stars Andre Holland as Dean, a powerful agent for NBA players who's stuck in the middle of yes and NBA lockout. He has a hotshot rookie client who's thirsting to get games going again and finally get paid. But it's not a Jerry Maguire story about an agent and a player learning lessons and growing and having money shown to them. <laughs> in many ways, it's another Soderbergh heist movie with Dean in the George Clooney role. But instead of robbing a casino, he's trying to work within the sports business to stealthily bring it all down. Sounds kind of cool. And again, just yeah. like, you're like, where did Soderbergh get into that? Yes. Great. Uh, all right, everybody. Well, uh, tune in next week where I have no idea what it's going to be. Oh, yeah. What are we going to do? Your uh, rant lit about uh, the wife really makes me want to do that. But <laughs> but until next week. But I don't have it. So. I mean, yeah. Maybe next week's time to release the mule and make some of our older clientele happy. <laughs> I know one, I know one guy. Been, yeah, exactly. He's very excited. One guy's going to be looking forward to that. Uh, okay. That's all you got. Did you hear any of that? Yeah. When we get home, I'm going to sit you and your sister down. And I'm going to tell you everything. Thanks for listening to Full Cast and Crew. I uh, just wanted to remind everyone to subscribe if you haven't already, so you'll get a new episode every Thursday. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at, at fullcastandcrew, or find us on Facebook.